a show of hands, how many of you want to make an impact with your life? Raise your hands up. Keep them high. How many of you want your life to have purpose? Okay. Put them down if you don't. Some of you in the room don't care. Okay, that's, uh, that's interesting. Now, what I love about y'all, you can put your hands down now. Um, what I love about your generation is all of you guys want to make an impact. All of you guys want your life to have meaning. All of you guys want your lives to matter. And it's something special about this generation that you guys are going into life just kind of wanting to make a splash, and I love that. Uh, it's exciting to work with college students and to speak to you guys because of that. And I remember when I was your age, um, I wasn't in a very good place for many years in my life. And I remember uh, when I was 22 or 23 in particular, um, I was at home with my mom and dad one day, and I just started weeping. And my dad came up and he was like, what, what's wrong with you? And I said, I feel like I don't have anything to look forward to in my life. And this was before I'd given my life to Jesus. This was before um, I had that experience with uh, the Tampa group down at USF where people studied the Bible with me and showed me that this Christianity thing is something different. I was reached through campus ministry, those of you that don't know. And I just didn't have anything to look forward to. But guys, I'm in a different place now. Because when you enter this relationship with Jesus, when you enter this relationship with God, guys, we have a lot to look forward to. Not only in this life, but in the next life too. But even in this life, guys, we've got things to do. Uh, pull out your Bibles. There's a couple of scriptures I want to look at just to kind of prepare our minds this morning uh, to get into our lesson. Look at uh, Colossians 1 to begin with, verse 15 and 16. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. And you guys will need a Bible this morning. We're going to look at... Uh, Look at a, quite a bit of scripture. But it says in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, the Son, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and what's that second part say? And what? And for him. So what is your life for? Who were you created for? Guys, you were created by Jesus for Jesus. So our lives are not our own just to begin with. Our lives are not our own. Now look at this, Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, get there real quick. It says this. Uh, beginning in verse 1, Paul, uh, writing to these people in Ephesus, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and uh, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. He's talking to people who had at one time not walked with Jesus, who made a decision that they were going to commit their life to him, and now they are. So at one time, uh, you gratified these cravings of the flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now look at this. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Guys, two big ideas here. You were created for Jesus. Amen? You were created by Jesus for Jesus. But guys, the gospel of Jesus isn't just about having your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven someday. The gospel of Jesus is about this idea that there's a person that God created you to be. And there are things that God created you to do. And this life is an opportunity for you to say yes to God or no to God. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say yes to God and those who say no to God. And on this idea of impact, every single one of you are going to make an impact on this world. Now, whether it's a good impact or a bad impact is up to whether you say yes to God or no to God. Does that make sense? But there's a person he created you to be. And just think of this idea of impact as the summit of this mountain. And there's a mountain between you and the summit There's some work, there's some pain, there's a process involved in getting to that summit. And what we're going to do this morning, just kind of keep that idea in your head, we're going to look at the story of a guy named Jonah. How many of you guys have read the story of Jonah before? Okay, quite a few of you. How many of you guys, Jonah's brand new, you don't know anything about Jonah? Okay, a few of you. Um, Most people have heard of this guy, but go ahead and um, open up your Bible to Jonah, and we're going to read through this this morning. (coughs) Now... A lot of us who grew up in the church, we grew up hearing these kids' stories. And I know a lot of people in here didn't grow up in the church, but for those of us that did, like me, we grew up hearing these kids' stories um, in the Bible or stories that really aren't kids' stories that are presented as kids' stories. Like, how many of you guys have gone over to somebody's house and you've seen, like, the mural of Noah uh, painted on the wall or in a Bible classroom, the, the mural of Noah painted on the wall and the ark and the little animals and everybody going in. How many of you have seen that somewhere? Okay, how many of you saw a mural of Noah and the little ark with all the dead bodies floating around it, and like all the people screaming in pain? And, uh, you know, that's not what you see on the kid's wall, right? Uh, Jonah is one of those stories. Every kid who grows up in church hears the story of Jonah and the whale, which wasn't a whale. It was a big fish, the Bible says, but that's beside the point. Um, you don't know about the pain and the horror that's also associated with this story of Jonah. And so you're going you're gonna to hear a little bit of that this morning. And so this starts out in Jonah 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. How many of you guys have heard of Nineveh before? Okay, Nineveh, old Nineveh, ancient Nineveh, is in a, in a place called Iraq, Mosul, Iraq. If you go to the city of Mosul in modern-day Iraq today and look across the river, you'll see two big mounds. That's the old Nineveh uh, that's over there. And, and at the time, guys, this was a huge city. Nineveh was uh, about seven miles in circumference of 100-foot-tall walls. 
and they had 1,500 watchtowers on top of these 100-foot walls. Some of the watchtowers were 200 feet high with soldiers manning them to this big fortified city. And the only reason you built a city in the ancient world was to worship a god. And so they had central to their city the god Asher, which was an old uh, nasty god. And these guys did all kinds of nasty things in worship of their god. And so God comes to Jonah and uh, tells him to go preach against this city and their wickedness. And it says in verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish, which in the ancient world was as far away from Nineveh as you could go. It'd be like God coming to you and saying, go to the northernmost tip of Canada and you go to the southernmost tip of South America. Or God comes to you and says, go to the North Pole, you go to the South Pole. You do the exact opposite of what God says, right? Now, who in here thinks Jonah made a good decision there? Probably none of us, right? We've got this outsider's perspective, this big picture perspective. But if you were Jonah's friend and you were with Jonah back in Jonah's day and God came and told you to go to the Ninevites and Jonah's like, peace out, you'd be like, man, I'd do the same thing. Because these guys were bad. Let me tell you a little bit about what the Ninevites were up to. I got a couple of slides here uh, that I want to show you. Can we get that PowerPoint up? Okay. This is a, a photo of an ancient wall relief, um, which is just a painting on a wall. This is a sketch of it. It's a little easier to make out. Um, but the Ninevites were very, very, very cruel people. Uh, they had a war machine that uh, three seasons out of the year would be on the road raping and pillaging and mutilating and murdering and pounding into submission everybody around them. This was the world power today. Assyria is uh, the country. Nineveh was their capital. Uh, the Assyrians were the power at this, at this time, around 750, uh, 800 B.C. Now, this wall relief pictures them taking prisoners, and you can see, I don't know if that's a hook they got in that guy's head, and this other dude's like pulling on his beard. This guy down here, they're ripping his tongue out. Um, go to the next one. <coughs> uh, you might notice here, this is uh, what they would do with their slaves is they would uh, take slaves from a, from a city that they took over, they would break their arms, they would contort them all kinds of weird ways, they would tie ropes around them so that they would be led all the way back to Nineveh with their broken bones and everything. And guys, it gets worse. Keep going here. Uh, this is just a relief of them, uh, kind of their battle mode. Keep going, one more. Okay, this is they're laying a guy down in front of a crowd of people and chopping him with axes. Keep going. Okay, this is one of the things that they made very famous. Okay, now this is, this is bad. They would take a prisoner and they would lay them out and they would tie them hand and foot and then they would take a big wooden spike and put it through their anus and hammer it all the way through and it had a big rounded end so it would miss all the vital organs but it would pin you to the ground, and then they would take a very sharp knife, and they would begin cutting strips out of your back, and cutting it and skinning you alive, called flaying, and they would lay the skin over, and then the birds and the wild animals would come and literally eat you alive. And they would lay you out in front of friends, relatives, children, where they had to watch this. Keep going. This is another flaying. 
So you can see there the strip of skin and a big hunk of flesh is hanging off the end of that guy on the side. They kind of had him elevated. Uh, one more. Okay, this is uh, another thing they would do whenever they would take prisoners. You might have seen they tied, the bro tied them by broken bones. They would sometimes put hooks or metal rings through their face or their bridge of their nose or their lips, and that's what they would yank around on to lead you back to Nineveh. Uh, they would also routinely blind people. Uh, and so this is a, a depiction of them blinding uh, one of their prisoners. Now, uh, one of the guys they blinded like this was a guy named Zedekiah, I believe, who was a king of Israel, and they killed his sons in front of him and then blinded him so that the last thing he would ever see was his sons being killed. Go ahead. Uh, this is just another picture of them leaving slaves off. Okay, last one. Oh, wait. Okay, that's uh, not the last one. That is impalement. How many of you guys have heard of impalement? You've heard of Vlad the Impaler. You've heard of all these guys in history. Guess who made this popular? The Assyrians. Um, I think I've got one more up there. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty horrible. This is the kind of thing they would do. Um, now, why do I bring this up to you? Guys, this is what Assyria was known for. They had this war machine, springtime, summertime, fall. They were on the road. In the wintertime, it rained, so they stayed home. But as soon as springtime hit, as soon as the rainy season was over, this huge throng of people in Nineveh would get together, and their priests would come out, and all the fighting men would come out, and they would lead this procession out of Nineveh with the king leading the front, the priest lining them, blessing them, praying to Asher, their false god, who liked and reveled in this kind of activity. They would bring them out, and they would pray over this procession of people, and this procession of ruthless, horrible, mean soldiers would go out to a neighboring city or neighboring town to kill everybody and take their stuff and take slaves. And so you would see this crowd of Ninevites coming toward you in the distance, huge army, biggest army that existed in that world, and they're coming toward you, and at the front of their procession, they've got this wagon, and on this wagon is dead body parts and like skin hanging off from flangs and heads on spikes and that wagon is at the front of the procession and the wagon comes up to the wall of your city and somebody comes up and screams to the watchman at the wall and says, do you see this wagon? And he's talking in your native language and he's saying, do you see this wagon? If you don't open your gates and let us in right now, you're going to end up like the people in this wagon. If you let us in now, it's going to be bad. But if you don't let us in, we're going to wait you out and then we're going to do this to you. And if you decided to resist, they would lay siege. They would surround your city, and they would cut off your water. They would cut off your food till eventually you start, because of starvation and dehydration, you, you have to do something. You have to surrender. So you surrender, and because you resisted, they bring families out, and they flay children in front of parents. They rape wives in front of husbands. They rape uh, and kill and murder and mutilate, and it's It's horrible. It's horrible. Guys, the cruelty of this nation was unmatched in a lot of ways by others. They did this because they wanted their reputation to be so bad that if they came to your city, you would just surrender. That's what a lot of people did. If you go look at history, you find out that where Jonah grew up, these guys came and did that to a neighboring town and village. It could be that Jonah grew up with these images in his mind of a friend or a relative hanging on a spike or with their skin laid out or no telling what. 
But guys, you know hurt people hurt people, right? Jonah was hurt. Even if he didn't have personal connection to anybody that was taken out like this, which I think he probably did. Guys, he loved his people. He loved Israel. He was a patriot. And that's the kind of stuff Assyria did to his people. They, you go read the Bible. They had a lot of trouble with Assyria. And so God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to the people that hurt you the worst. I want you to go and try to get them to repent because their wickedness has come up before me. You guys know why God sends a prophet to people? To give them an opportunity to repent. Jonah didn't want these people to repent. Jonah wanted these people to die and go to hell. Jonah didn't want them to find grace. And so Jonah does what many of us in this room, myself included, would have likely done. And he says, no. And he runs from God. Let's see what happens. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. We know why. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. After the sailors were afraid and each cried to his own God, they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And so they cast lots, which was kind of an ancient form of throwing dice. They used it to commune with the spirits or whatever. You see this a few times in, in Scripture, and these are pagans doing it. Uh, but God makes that point to Jonah. And so these guys, these pagans, go up to Jonah and said, man, what's going on? Now, these are seasoned sailors that are scared. This is a big storm, right? They know there's some divine force behind the storm. And they come to Jonah, and Jonah answers in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh-oh. This terrified these sailors, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the, man, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Okay. Whenever Jonah says... They say, what will make the sea grow calm? When Jonah says, ah, just throw me overboard, I'll die, it'll go away. Was that an act of repentance? No, you see how committed the dude is to his sin? He's like, just kill me, brah. I ain't doing it. 
whatever, God, just, I'm going to just kill me, right? And so it's funny, like the guy who's supposed to be the prophet of God, the one who does what God says in the story, is doing the opposite of that. And then the pagans are the ones who are being somewhat faithful. And they throw this guy out. They're like, please, God, we don't want to do this, but this guy's being stupid. We're going to throw him out. Um, You know, God didn't let him row back to shore. He's like, no, go ahead and throw him out. This guy needs to learn a lesson, right? And so they throw him out, and he's in the sea. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now move on to chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Okay, let me stop right there. This tells us that before this prayer, Jonah had been praying. And so these guys toss him out the boat, and he goes in the water, and Jonah suddenly realizes, maybe I messed up. And he starts calling out to the Lord. Guys, Jonah is a really good example of someone who's acting like a fool. The Bible says that the primary characteristic of a fool, if you go read the book of Proverbs and just study the fool, the fool's main problem is that they don't fear God. The fool's main problem is they ain't going to take correction from anybody because they're hard-headed and it's going to take a pig pen to get them to repent. How many of you guys in this room are hard-headed and been in a pig pen? I have. Guys, I grew up with a good mom and dad. They tried to teach me. I had some bad stuff happen to me when I was a kid. I was uh, molested uh, pretty severely when I was younger. I grew up thinking I was a piece of crap. I turned to drugs and alcohol and all kinds of other things to self-medicate. Even though I grew up going to church, my parents didn't know about all that stuff that was going on. Uh, I was messed up. And I thought, I got to be out for me. I got to take care of myself. And so I really messed up my life because I wasn't going to listen to nobody because I couldn't trust anybody, I thought. You guys ever read the story of the prodigal son? That guy thinks he's got life all figured out. He winds up in a pig pen. And guys, the pig pen, there's, for every prodigal, there's a pig pen. And the pig pen itself is an act of grace. God knows Jonah's heart's not going to change if he goes back to shore and goes on his merry way. So God makes it where that boat ain't going to go back to shore until Jonah's overboard. Jonah found himself in a pig pen in the form of an ocean. And guys, it's in the pig pen that Jonah repents. He starts crying out to God, saying, man, I made a big mistake. And so in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep, in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you and to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. 
But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. What was Jonah's idol that he had been clinging to? It was his hatred for these people. The Bible talks about setting up an idol in your heart in the book of Ezekiel. You can set up idols for yourselves in your heart. Jonah's idol that he had set up in his heart was this anger and this hatred and this fear and this loathing that he had of the Assyrians and their capital city, Nineveh, and everybody in it. And this idol that he had set up in his heart kept him from doing what God wanted him to do initially until God helped him get to a place where he needed to tear down this idol. He knew he needed to tear down this idol that he had. And he saw it for what it was. It was an idol. And so God has this fish take him and puke him up, which a lot of people get hung up on the fish. They want to know what kind of fish was it. You know, let's look at the different species. Guys, it doesn't matter. It's a fish God sent. Just think of it as an ancient form of Uber, and the app is prayer. You know, like, that's how it worked. Don't get caught up on the fish. But God made this fish go and puke him onto the land. And so his mode of transportation, which would that would have been funny to see, by the way. This book is hilarious. Can you imagine seeing a big fish just puke a guy? Like, you go out to the beach, and a fish comes up and just pukes the guy out. That would be funny. That's, maybe that's just my sense of humor. Um, I would think that would be awesome, uh, as long as it wasn't me. But anyway, verse 4, but to Jonah, wait a second here. Did I skip something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so Jonah goes in, and his only message, guys, he doesn't have an altar call. He doesn't say, if you repent. He doesn't say, if you do this right. He just goes in and says, in 40 days, your city's going to be destroyed by God. Now, these people respond by repentance. Is Jonah happy? Keep reading. Verse 10, one more time. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. 
he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better, to me, better for me to die than live. He's like, God, you're too good. How many of you guys get angry at God because he's too good? You're too kind. You're too gracious. You're too merciful. This makes me angry. Had Jonah completely torn his idol down? Guys, he wanted these people to burn. And so he goes and sits on a hill overlooking the city for 40 days he waits. And then day 40 comes and passes. And the fireballs don't come down from heaven. And Jonah's mad about it. He is the greatest evangelist in the history of the Bible. Do you guys realize there is no other record anywhere else in the whole thing where a guy goes and preaches a message and 120,000 people come to Christ? Or come to God, at least. This was pre-Jesus. He's the greatest evangelist in the Bible, and he's upset about it. He's hating life. Keep reading here. Jonah had gone, or excuse me, verse 4, the Lord replies, is it right for you to be angry? But Jonah had gone out and set in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, set in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He got a little ahead of myself there. He's still waiting. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant. Though you didn't tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's the end of the book. This guy's a character, man. But you know what? I see myself in him. I am Jonah. He goes without a care in his heart for these people. But a lot of thoughts about himself. He goes and he's really enthralled and excited about this instant gratification that he's getting in the form of this plant. And he gets all upset when his instant gratification gets taken away. And at the end of the book, guys, he's still thinking about himself. He's not thinking about these people. I see myself in the story. And uh, I know that 
a lot of you guys may not be aware of it because sometimes, uh, you know, like a fish is in an ocean, it doesn't know that it's wet. It's just sort of the world that it's in. I think a lot of you guys aren't aware of some of the idols that might be in your heart just because of the way you've grown up. Not really even through any fault of your own, but because of the world you live in today. Guys, a lot of you who are college students now, you've never been in a world without uh, large amounts of television, large amounts of internet time, large amounts of video game time, uh, you know, all the food you want to eat, like all the snacks, candy. You guys realize that your generation, instant gratification is like more in your face than any generation before you. A lot of you guys have grown up with websites available for you to make dedicated to you. Where you can post photographs of you, selfies of you, and then sit around and wait on people to come and like them. That's the world that you live in. You grew up with it. You're self-focused and narcissistic. A lot of you grew up with parents that my generation of parenting tended to do a lot of stuff for you when in years past there were things we had to do for ourselves a lot of that's not part of our culture anymore and so without realizing it a lot of you have grown up to tend a lot toward laziness and unreliability if you don't believe me go talk to some business owners and employers that hire a lot of people y'all's age a lot of you in here struggle with hatred because you were abused like I was. Or you struggle with insecurity or whatever it may be, guys. There's idols in our hearts. How many of you want to make an impact on the world? Pretty much everybody. Remember how I said in the beginning, impact is like up here. It's this thing that we want to reach. It's, we want to make sure it's godly. And everybody wants that. But what you guys struggle with, and I've seen this over and over and over, is you guys don't understand in order to get there, there's pain did you know it's hard to tear your idols down? Did you know when God confronts you with your idol, it hurts? But there's also value in pain. Guys, for Jonah, there was value in him getting thrown out of a stinking ship and nearly drowning. And then going inside a fish and getting partially digested before the fish puked him out. There's value in that. How much time do we have? What time are we supposed to be done? Okay, I got a couple of uh, scriptures I want to look at real quick. Um, the three major idols I see for you guys that will work on is this uh, comfort and instant gratification, narcissism and self-focus, and then laziness and unreliability, just when you get down to it. Um, how many of you guys saw that, uh, that guy, Simon Sinek, 
Anybody in here see that? He's a, a business strategist. I posted it on the CMU feed the other day. Um, but he's a guy who works with large corporations and businesses. He's an expert, and he's an expert on this generation uh, that's upcoming in the workforce. And a lot of the research and uh, thinking he's done has been along these lines. And this is actually uh, – these are his observations as far as the stuff that I'm pointing out, the instant gratification, all that stuff. I think he's right on. Uh, that video is on the, on the feed if you guys want to go check it out later. Um, but uh, Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In terms of instant gratification, guys, this is something that, uh, that I struggle with, and I think you guys do too. Uh, but Jesus says this road to life is going to be tough. And a lot of you know my story, but um, just a few years ago, I moved to San Francisco uh, to start a campus ministry. And to be honest with you, when I became a Christian, <clears throat> I loved God sincerely, and I wanted to serve God sincerely. But I also deep down felt horrible about myself, and I was constantly looking for pats on the back, and I was constantly looking for affirmation from other people. And so when this opportunity came for me to go to San Francisco, uh, I felt like God was leading me that direction, but at the same time, I wanted to go because it would look good if I went out there and started a ministry because it's a big city and I'd get a lot of positive attention. And so, guys, my motives were not pure in that. And so I went out there with the intention of planting a campus ministry. I wanted to serve God, but deep down, I also really wanted it to do well so that I would look good because I needed that. I thought I did. And so you guys know how that went? Not so well. Um, I spent tons of time online when I was out there because I was depressed. And uh, one of the things that I've learned is, you guys ever hear of dopamine? It's this little thing in your brain that uh, whenever you do something you like, you get a little hit of dopamine in your brain. It's the same thing that's released when you do drugs. It's the same thing that's released when you take alcohol. Uh, do you know what else releases dopamine in your brain? Getting online and playing around on Facebook and getting some positive feedback like on social media or writing a blog and getting positive feedback on a blog. You get these little hits of dopamine. And... Uh, I really just spent an inordinate amount of time when I should have been spending it with people playing around, jacking around online, playing video games. How many of you guys have struggled with that? Okay, that's an instant gratification stuff. Um, but all of that came because I was not thinking about other people. I was just really thinking about me, right? Um, another scripture I want to think about is Matthew 16. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Uh, 
this is another thing I've really struggled with, guys, is just getting the focus off me and living my life for the Lord. One more scripture, <clears throat> Proverbs 13.4, says, A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Um, or a lazy person's appetite is never filled. Um, guys, I've struggled with this too, with just kind of being lazy. And... Uh, tell you all of this really just stems from me thinking about me and me thinking about what I want to do and me thinking about myself and not thinking about others not thinking about uh, how I can impact others and how I can help others and I just want to encourage you guys uh, to identify the idols in your heart and repent of them tear them down for Jonah it was hatred, it was anger, it was, I don't want these people to come to the Lord. I don't think many of us really struggle with that as much. It's probably more of, we just think of ourselves. We just don't think of others very much. Um, and so guys, identify the idol and tear it down. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say, so I'm going to wrap it up. Man, that ended on a dud. Sorry, guys. Um, no, but seriously, I, I, this story is great, and I encourage you to dig into it. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get out of here. God, I want to thank you for uh, bringing us together this weekend. Uh, Father, I pray that what was presented here this morning, Father, I really didn't even know where to go there at the end, but uh, I think just getting these words across that, that selfishness is the root of this evil of idolatry that plagues us today. Um, Father, I pray that, that what was said here today will, will take root and people will just think about the selfishness in their own lives. Father, I am naturally very selfish. I'm naturally hard-headed. Uh, I'm naturally evil. And Father, I have to get up daily and, and really try to follow you because in my natural self, I don't. Um, Lord, I just want to pray for our weekend. I pray that uh, the classes go well. I pray that people leave encouraged. And, uh, Father, I just thank you for bringing us together and the fellowship we share in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.